Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of Rugby League Reflections, a one-day conference to mark 21 years of Tom Brock activities. This was held at the Wright Eastwood Leagues Club on the 11th of November. I was very privileged to attend and hear 12 amazing presentations, covering a really diverse range of topics relating to rugby league history. So long-time listeners of this show would have heard me talk about the Tom Brock Lecture a lot, I've recently joined the Tom Brock Bequest Committee, it's, uh, which I'm very excited about. It's a cause I really believe in, and I think it aligns a lot with some of the aims of this podcast, which is to put rugby league history forward uh, and, above all, treat the game seriously. I've whinged about that so much over the past three years that it's become a bit of a catchphrase. So uh, I'm very happy to be part of the Tom Brock Committee and even happy to have the chance to share these presentations to anyone who wasn't there on the day. I managed to meet a few Rugby League Digest listeners on the day, but I'm I'm hoping in future events we can see even more of you there. Uh, And this gives you a taste of of what is in store for you if if you do attend any Tom Brock events, because it's it's always you're you're in a room with some of the, the smartest Rugby League minds in the world, and this day was no exception. And so you're going to hear a lot of them over the next four days. So there were four sessions on the day. So we're releasing these podcasts one session at a time. So so today we'll be hearing the morning session and to kick it off it's Heidi Norman and her presentation Aboriginal Participation in Rugby League Interpreting State Ambitions and Community Agency. Uh, and at the top of this you're going to hear Tom Brock Chairman Andrew Moore who uh, introduces the day as well as our first speaker. Uh, and I've included this uh, not only because Andrew really sets the table well for the 12 presentations but he does also outline the, the aims of the Tom Brock Committee and some of that history. So I, I thought it was a, a really good place to start. Uh, as he does introduce Heidi, I'm not going to spend too much time doing that now, except to add that this is really important work and it's actually a really exciting time for this type of research because there's so much of these stories that haven't been written down yet. And you'll, you'll hear Heidi talk about uh, an Aboriginal player from the Blue Mountains named Jackie Brooks. You wonder how many other Jackie Brookses there are with more of this research coming out. So uh, a very exciting time for this aspect of academic endeavour and a, a really fascinating listen. So I'm going to throw it straight to Andrew, and then from there you'll hear Heidi Norman give her talk. First of all, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Andrew Moore. Thousand years ago, I wrote the history of the North Sydney Bears, and um, I'm the chair of the Tom Brock Bequest Committee. So I'm very honoured to be here. This is a 21st anniversary sort of function, and I think before we begin, it would be only appropriate too to recognise the traditional custodians uh, of this land on whom we meet, or the Wollongong people. I normally say Eora because we normally meet in the town, but they are the local people from this part of uh, Kissing Point area. 
Tom Brock Bequest Committee places great store in quality research. We, of course, run a lecture every year that no doubt most of you attend. Um, and we're interested in uh, encouraging quality research, so we have a scholarship to that end. Writing and research on rugby league we regard as being very important when we have this annual lecture, which has been running since 1999. Um, we're, this, is a new this is a new innovation for us, a conference, a small conference. Great to see so many people here, actually. I mean, I know it's free, but that's still pretty impressive when we have visitors from New Zealand. Um, thank you very much for coming, all of you. Thank you for coming from Sydney, too, because getting across Sydney can be almost as difficult as coming from New Zealand. And uh, there, right, just a few thanks, too. I think it, you know, the conference today really does reflect that deep interest in rugby league and its, uh, and its history. And I just, I'm not only allowed five minutes, so I'm not going to wrap it on for very long, but I will just say um, that it's interesting that you very rarely meet anyone who knows anything about rugby union history. And interestingly enough, considering they're supposedly the educated ones and we're not, um, it's rugby league that has the deep interest in its history. Not so much rugby union, I mean, it's Peter Fitzsimons, I suppose. But uh, beyond that, I'm not sure that there is a great well of knowledge about rugby union. I might well be wrong about that, but that's just a general impression that I have. Just some thanks too before I sit down, retire hurt. Uh, thanks to the club for providing this venue. It's a great venue. Uh, I mean, it truly is. I've been here for another functions and things that a, a car club that I belong to has its meetings here, and it's pretty impressive, really. So, um, and the facilities are available to us. Can I encourage you to use the uh, facilities? Because that's how I gather we'd be paying for this function. We don't think we pay anything independently, so we're, they'd be relying upon our lunches, for instance. They have excellent food here. And uh, thanks too for all the presenters who have come here today. Yes, I must do the same to my phone. Um, and as I say, yeah, please use the facilities. And thanks to Walla Walla Press and its uh, that, that vast uh, sports history consortium that runs most of Peterson and Marrickville and the managing director, CEO, Dr Richard Cashman, who's here today for providing a cuppa, morning tea. Thanks mainly to Kath Haynes, uh, the conference secretary, because uh, I've organised a few conferences uh, in my time and none of them have ever been easy, so I'm sure that this is much the same. Thank you for going to that trouble. And um, I'd just like to reflect in the course of the day too, if you've got a moment to reflect about how we can even help to promote a broader interest in the history of, of our game. And I think that would be a good thing to do. But I shall stand down now and bludge in the back play for the rest of the day, which is good. And Richard is going to introduce the speakers for the first session. Is that not right? I'll introduce the first speaker. You'll introduce the first speaker. Good. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I'm uh, chair for the first session, which will be an hour and a half. Each speaker will have uh, 30 minutes, and I encourage each speaker to stop after about 20 minutes, so that there's time for questions. Anyway, there'll be time afterwards. Um, the first speaker is Professor Heidi Norman, who's Chair Indigenous Politics and History and from my own university, University of Technology, Sydney. And uh, Heidi's speaking on Aboriginal participation in rugby league, interpreting state ambitions and community agency. Thank you, Heidi. Thank 
very much for having me, and hello, everyone. Um, let me please lend um, also uh, my acknowledgement of the of the traditional owners of this land, and um, and think also about the history of place. Um, uh, and um, I'm not familiar with this country here. Um, I grew up in Western Sydney, and now live over in the um, over Eastern Beaches, but. Um, I do know that um, it's reported that Bennelong is buried here, very, very nearby. So maybe, um, maybe he's someone also to um, to think about as we, as we, um, as we meet here today. I'm just pushing start so that I don't run over time. Uh, and um, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to to speak about my research on rugby league. It's not my main game. My main work is on um, is actually on Aboriginal land rights. Um, but I, I really enjoy the opportunity to, to return to rugby league-related scholarship uh, because it's so much fun, it's so interesting, and um, and certainly um, um, it, it it brings up. It's not it's not inconsistent with my work around um, Aboriginal politics and history, but it brings up bigger contradictions, and that it's really that point the point of contradiction that I want to look at today. So just to um, just to start with, um, I've got the abstract there that's reproduced in the, reproduced in the program and also um, you can see there in this PowerPoint my contact details are there and I say that um, because I really want to encourage more research and scholarship around Aboriginal participation in rugby league and, um, and so if that is of any interest please get in contact with me. I think there's some really rich um, material to, to still be to still be looked at over. There have been some interesting studies, um, uh, but there's still much more to be done, and I really think there's room for more scholarship in the area. Okay, so let, let's get on with things. Um, this work um, today that I'm going to talk about, um, I, have, I have published around the topic, um, but I, I want to think about, I want to introduce, use this opportunity really to share some other ideas about um, the contradictions, if you like, around Aboriginal participation in rugby league. And so why, why am I interested in this? Well, um, for one thing, in terms of my own family, my, on my mum's side, um, my mum's maiden name is Rutley. That's um, our Aboriginal family from northwestern New South Wales. And across mum's cousins and my nans and my nans' aunts, the, our extended family networks are Canes, Blacklocks, Trindles, others, but they're, they're the main family groups. So like a lot of Aboriginal families, you are not without one or more first grade rugby league player within your family network. And then also you would know from my surname, my father's family are Normans from Annandale, and they go back to those, um, to those early foundation clubs and, um, and uh, all those brothers playing together. Um, but from my own point of view, I've never been on the receiving end of a of a crushing of a um, of a of a tackle. Um, I I prefer the um, you know hollow ground of university life. Um, but certainly rugby league is um, is really dear, and I you know I'm really curious to think through in this um, in this presentation today, picking up what George George Rose, who's now you you know he played for Manly, and now he's a commentator with the show on NITV. He says rugby league is like a religion in Aboriginal communities. And that, that is certainly the case if we look at um, uh, a number of, of recent events like the New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout. But at the same time, there, there is a, I, I want to start with these contradictions, as I'm saying. So, first contradiction. In October of 2017, and this is um, 
Um, this is for a, a book chapter that I completed recently. Um, I'm referencing this material. It sounds a little bit dated now. So the Australian Federal Government dismissed Aboriginal people's calls for recognition as a polity on the grounds that it lacked public support. Yet in other ways, Indigenous Australians as, are recognised as a distinct people. So the day after the Prime Minister's announcement rejecting the Uluru Statement, the opening ceremony of the Rugby League World Cup on October 27th witnessed the embracing of Aboriginal customs and country as central and defining of the national team, the kangaroos. The kangaroo players' pledge might have lacked the appealing ferocity of the haka, but at the opening of the World, of a rug, world Rugby League competition, the Australian national side was proud to present itself through symbols of Aboriginal heritage. The Australian government at the same time deemed such a recognition electorally unpalatable. The high numbers of players, this is from the NRL data in 2018, suggests that 12% of players in NRL are Aboriginal, Indigenous, and across the code, 19% of all registered rugby league players are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. There's the Indigenous Round, long-running Aboriginal community carnivals, and now the Festival of Indigenous Rugby League Season Curtain Raiser, attest to the code of rugby league providing the space to exercise and express contemporary Aboriginal identity and connections in a uniquely self-defined way that seems to comfortably carry the weight of the complexity and tensions that entails, and so are all their multicultural teammates and code administrators. Yet the Yet the expressions of identity available through rugby league have inevitably been filtered, contained and enabled by social relations of racism and the state's authority and control over Aboriginal lives. Aboriginal participation in rugby league has had an enduring presence in, in periods of Australian history where such participation would seem unlikely as segregation and containment policies were pursued and complex and contradictory as assimilation policies were enacted. Commencing from the 1970s, the era of self-determination suggests an arena for identity expression more free from state authority. But even this, I want to I suggest there is some contestation, as um, funding for Aboriginal Rugby League carnivals inevitably... Um, how you secure that funding shapes narrative, and um, the sponsorship um, is, um, you know, has certain socio-cultural spaces asserted to be controlled. I'll elaborate this more, hopefully, in my 20 minutes. Um, so in this, in this kind of self-determination era, the explicit authority of the state is just, is, continues to be discernible, like it was back in the 1920s and 1930s. So I want to suggest there's some continuity in how the, shape states, the, shape, sh the state shapes um, Aboriginal participation in rugby league um, because of that reliance on government, um, government funding. So... <coughs> As you can see, um, um, this body of work, I've published quite a bit on, around Aboriginal participation in rugby league and certainly around the history of the knockout. But in this work here, I'm, I want to tease out these contradictions. And Colin Tatz, you would know his work, sociologist, um, he's, he captures this contradiction in saying, Australian society is racist, it also worships sport. So within that space, there, um, you know, there I think there are a series of contradictions emerge. So let's think about one contradiction. Um, so I only have about four slides here, and most of them are photos. So you, John Lowe um, introduced um, Jackie Brooks to a wider audience. Um, he has been known up in the um, Blue Mountains community of Katoomba for many years. But here he is. Um, you can see he's in this group photo, and this was probably the Fed. He played in 
from 1923 in a team up in the uh, Katoomba in the Blue Mountains for the Federals, and they did change names, so I'm not sure what these jersey, what particular time this photo was taken. And he lived, um, he's a Gundungara man. I've written a piece for him for the Dictionary of Biography, or maybe those are the other way around. So you can have a read of that, a more elaborated account that also draws on John Lowe's work. But um, I, I want to think about Jackie Brooks as um, um, through the lens of exceptionalism. So he really is the first, I'm, I'm arguing, he's the first record we have of an Aboriginal player on the public record. And he rose to prominence in... Um, from 1923, and he played with the Katoomba side until about 19, approximately 1936, perhaps a little bit longer. Um, he lived at what was an Aboriginal, self-selected Aboriginal reserve or mission known as the Gully, and the back, um, back gully area behind uh, west of Katoomba, just west of Katoomba. Um, he played on the wing. He was... Um, his performances attracted glowing commentary in the local papers. He travelled um, further afield. He trialled for a country representative side unsuccessfully. In, um, um, at various times, the entries in the local paper speak of him being... Um, he electrified the crowd every time he took to the field. Even at one time, he, he took to the field late for a game at Springwood. Maybe he was running late, and as soon as he entered the field, the crowd were on their feet cheering for him. Um, as John Lowe says, one um, reporter was inspired to quote the poetry of Tennyson to convey how he electrified the crowd. Um, his his um, impressive performance was not confined to the field. When the Blues, this is the Katoomba side, hosted the winners of the Sydney competition, the Eastern Suburbs President Cup team, um, at a gathering at the Carrington Hotel uh, where, where Jackie Brooks worked for more than a decade. He... The, the president paid a high, uh, quote, paid a high, high tribute to Jackie Brooks, which caused prolonged cheering from all present. Later in the evening, he entertained the crowd with a few songs. Um, he played um, gum leaf, he sang, he was a good dancer. He was recognised in September 1924 as the club's most proficient player and inscribed on the inaugural Federal Shield. So, um, you know, how, do, how does somebody like Jackie Brooks exist in the context of... Um, in other places across New South Wales, um, Aboriginal people were living um, in... Um, there, there was the emergence of a, of a separation and segregation regime on the sites of missions and reserves as um, the Aborigines Protection Board from 1909 gained much greater authority and much greater rights to intervene in your life. Um, Jackie Brooks was not... He was not passing in white society, I would argue. We see in, lo in several photos, um, maybe they were post-training, um, Jackie Brooks sitting up in the cafes along the main street of Katoomba with other Aboriginal men. Maybe one was his brother-in-law who also lived down at the gully. Um, so how we make sense of Jackie Brooks's acceptance... Um, relative acceptance in um, in white society is is hard to comprehend. Another another example that that I think points to all we have is the archive to go on that points to Jackie Brooks not passing in white society is in 1927 he took legal action against his employer at the Hydro Majestic for un, um, for withholding wages. And he was successful. He was reported in the local paper. The popular rugby league player Jackie Brooks was in court today, um, and he was successful. 
his wages were fully paid and costs were um, made against his employer at the Hydro Majestic. So I think that is an example that he wasn't someone who was acquiescing to white society. He was quite front-footed. He was um, he was viewed as courageous and strong um, in the 1930s, I think it was. He played through a game with broken ribs. He continued into the second half to embark on crashing tackles. That was reported in the local paper and it was also the first time his Aboriginality was listed as a as prominent, and, and it was picked up in several other North Coast newspapers and others. So they're referring to this courageous abo who, despite the ambulance officers and first aid officers trying to get him off the field, he, he wouldn't leave. So the, these um, are real contradictions. But moving on, um, uh, um, we can see here some of these um, other photos. These are um, up the top, it's a pretty grainy reproduction of a photo of the Maury boomerangs from the 1930s. And down the bottom, um, if I could go through my notes, um, I think this was from 1936, um, and it was the opening of the um, 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 oh, 1931, and this was um, the Abos v Unandera, and it's, a, a, it's like an exhibition match in celebration of the opening of the theatre in, um, in, in that south coast town. So this is... You know, if we situate this event in the context of what was happening in Aboriginal lives down on the south coast, not necessarily Unandera, but certainly in pockets along the south coast, Heather Goodall documents this in her study of land as a central political um, theme in Aboriginal lives, of a south coast communities um, embarking, south coast white communities, and um, as townships were expanding, um, embarking on various campaigns to push Aboriginal settlements or reserves and missions further out of town. So if you would have already been on the other side of the railway track, on the other side of the creek, on the other side of the river, over lands that likely were um, exposed to um, flooding and other, and other, you know, other risk-type um, land that you were relegated to. But by 1924, those white townships on the south coast were segregating schools. Um, they were embarking on other strategies to force you to either um, be further centralised into, into um, the outskirts of towns or, um, or in order to gain access to your land. So Heather, Heather Goodall talks about this as a white desire for land, as those townships expanded and there was a desire to push Aboriginal people into increasingly... Um, invisible outlier spaces. And, and yet we can see these other instances of high, hugely successful Aboriginal teams participating from, um, from mission sites or reserve sites. I don't know that there are many examples, I don't know of any other examples like someone like Jackie Brooks who was a black man playing in these white sites. There, was an, there is one example from... Um, from Dubbo, the Dubbo Waratahs, they described them, they referred to themselves as a mixed race team from the Railway Workers Union and they were competing in 1947 out in, um, in that Dubbo comp. Just to, to um, cover off on some of these earlier examples, um, just going back through here, we see there's the Maury Boomerangs, La Perouse, Arambi All Blacks, Tweed Heads All Blacks, Redfern All Blacks was likely to be, have been a mixed side, Burrabadee from Coonabarabran Mission, a team from Bellbrook, and the Bellbrook Mission in the Campsie Valley and the Foster Hawks from Sunrise Station. That was later known as Perfleet Mission. Um, the last, this last team were Manning Valley. This is a Sunrise Station, Perfleet side. They were Manning Valley Great Lakes Premiership winners in the 1930s. Um, 
I recently came across a further example of an apparently remarkable team on a Facebook site dedicated to Aboriginal and Islander rugby league from the 1900s. Aside from the New South Wales North Coast, a casino all blacks bearing familiar family names and the captions premieres 1948-54. So this is a pretty stunning sort of um, reign of victory. There were one-off tournaments, as I mentioned. Um, these examples of participation in rugby league sit aside developments of much more interventionist controls by the state. So by, by, the, by the 1909 and certainly by the 1920s, there was increasing pressure and desire for land um, and this was being achieved by the um, segregation in schools, as I mentioned, and also the removal of children. So once your children, were, once the schools were segregated, that made your children, that made your family very vulnerable to state intervention. So when kids weren't attending school, and that was a basis for the intervention of the state to remove your children. Um, and that, um, but of course, um, that stepped up markedly from from about the 1940s. So uh, what, what does this mean? Um, so yeah, I'm curious to think about how is it that from this time most public spheres came to be segregated to Aboriginal people. So schools, hospitals, picture theatres, swimming pools, cemeteries and even towns themselves up until the mid-1960s were segregated. All the while these government controls were being exercised and enabled by right, white residents, Aboriginal men and their supporters were successfully competing in rugby league in the bush and city. Such participation would have involved certain levels of intimacy. You know, I'm thinking about sharing of change rooms, of the, of the intimacy of, of um, tackling, of coming together, um, of crowds, supporters, you know, being, being around a shared oval, barracking. And however constrained by racism, abhorrence of Aboriginal bodies and hygiene. So hygiene, of, of course, was, um, was a theme that... Well, that um, allowed, that was a basis for segregation. So the, you know, the disease of that <coughs> Aboriginal kids had the health risk of Aboriginal kids to to other non to white kids in schools. Um, and the show of physical prowess and flair. So we see that in the <coughs> descriptions of Jackie Brooks, we don't see any reference to him being freakish or having freakish abilities. Some of those, you know, much more racially inflected overtones. Um, so we have, we have, you know, I think there are limited ways to understand um, this past. There is um, Footy, the La Perouse way, in their documentary made in 2006. They, they raise some interesting ways to comprehend this period. And they say, um, I think this was a quote from Larpa Stewart, who you would know, he, he was the so-called glamour winger playing for the eastern suburbs, that he said their club was... Um, he said in those early day in the those early mission days government policy made it impossible for black fellas to integrate into Australian society and he described their club as united um, club has emerged as a result of the 1930s era, depre era depression where the tin huts on the beach that had long been the camp homes of Aboriginal people came to accommodate blacks whites and new migrants sharing the common bond of poverty from this bond Longbutton explains in the doco um, that people from all cultural backgrounds came to play for La Perouse. Um, and then, you know, poor, dear old Uncle Bruce, he speaks, um, he recalled how, and I quote, went to school with Italians, Greeks, and of course people from the Chinese gardens for years and years and years. And all those blokes all played football with us. I remember when we drank at Matraville Pub, some of the Coories would come down from the country and thought it was a big surprise to see us drinking with white fellas. If you could play football, it didn't matter if you were black, white or brindle. So in this account... Um, 
you know, Uncle Bruce, he, um, he, he recites the accommodation by the La Perouse community of difference. But we don't have any account of from the other side. Um, so for, um, I know that I'm, I'm fast approaching my time. But just let me, I just want to make a couple of extra points. So, so here I think we see examples of exceptionalism, maybe exhibitionism that could be continuous if we think about, say, the performance of um, Aboriginal people and people of colour in the circus, maybe, that kind of exhibition and performativity. But by the 1950s, as the assimilation policy becomes much more entrenched and, and state intervention is much more active, so we think about the removal of children and um, our removal of children and certainly the creation of the super reserve, so the forcible relocation of families and, um, and even forcible relocation to regional centres around, around employment centres, industrial employment centres, um, we can see that Rugby league became a site for achieving that disciplining of the body and site for achieving assimilation. And I'm just going to very briefly turn to speak about um, Harry Penrith, who you would, some of you would, would know about. He was at Kinchilla Boys Home and he was described in Dawn magazine. And this Dawn magazine was the, you know, basically it was a propaganda publication of the, of the Welfare Board, um, at least in the 1950s. Um, and it describes his brilliant try scoring. He was the only try scorer for the entire game. This was in a, a representative side that he made selection for. He was at basic Kempsey High School, so he was at Kinchilla Boys, which is one of the institutions where Aboriginal boys were placed. Um, and he was playing in the University Shield game. Um, but the likely intention of the article, keeping in mind this is a magazine that was distributed to Aboriginal family homes, was a feedback from his white billet mum who reported favourably on his manners and respect and that she would be proud to call him her son. So keeping in mind also, this was a time when there was um, a lot of uh, um, effort to have Aboriginal kids adopted into white families. So these, um, the subtext here is... Um, the um, potential for boys, uh, for boys at Kinchilla, um, to be um, assimilated into into white families. But at the same time, um, we can see uh, there was another story uh, from 1952 in Dawn, and the title was "The Unbeatable La Perouse Public School Rugby League Team Who Have Never Never Had a Point Scored Against Them." And again, Tari Aboriginal Station. This is in 1953, and I uh, quote it on the other side of the river, about two miles, were reported to be saving money through their Progress Association for, among other sports, their rugby league club. The March 1953 edition of Dawn reports the station has a thriving rugby league club which holds substantial funds to, need, to meet, it needs, meet its needs for the forthcoming season. And I quote, the team has won the district competition for the past two seasons and are fielding a strong first grade team. These articles offer a glimpse of the success Aboriginal people were achieving and also they reveal how participation in rugby league appears to positively reflect on the New South Wales government's assimilation ambitions in creating disciplined, responsible subjects capable of joining the undifferentiated ranks of Australians. Um, I'm just going to jump through here um, to, um, to show a slightly different era. And this, this photo that... Um, has been in circulation for a while. I think it was in 1972 or 1973, and he's a team of um, Aboriginal players selected, mostly from New South Wales, but further afield, and also with some performers in the midst there on a tour to New Zealand. And um, uh, so they're at the airport ready to go off on the tour. So you can see they had funding from what was the newly 
um, kind of mentored Department of Aboriginal Affairs at the Commonwealth level, and also the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs, which is uh, what um, what the late Charles Perkins uh, was, you know, was a key actor in. Um, and I've uh, got these slightly out of order, but here we see the. This is from 1969, and it's the Redfern All Blacks on on a tour. Um, heading to casino, and this was a knockout competition. So the New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout started in 1971, but this is an example of some of those earlier knockout carnivals. And we can see here there's a big shift that's taking place where um, there is a much greater um, Aboriginal story that underpins these events and underpins participation. One is there's funding that becomes available, um, and still... Um, the Welfare Board still has a role um, in um, convening these events, or at least it comes on the co it comes at the end of the the Welfare Board is really winding up by this time by 1969. Um, but the infrastructure is still all there, and the patterns of all, of community organising are still there. So the missions still um, are in existence. They're in dreadful um, um, substandard housing as the Welfare Board starts to wind down their spending, and that's with a view to pushing families off the missions and reserves and into into towns. Um, but at the same time, you've got, you've got the Mundines there, you've got several other big names who you would be more than familiar with, um, who um, have the resources to, to take a bus with, it, with the own banner and, um, and head up to places like Casino. And you can imagine the sort of sharing of ideas. So a lot of this mob were from the south coast, from the north coast living in Redfern, but Redfern was a site of political ferment and organisation and rugby league was... Um, Rugby League was an important site. It allowed, you know, you were travelling, you were mixing with one another. Um, there was not only the Redfern All Blacks, but you had La Perouse, and then you also had, by the 1970s, um, another team formed, Corey United, that drew on Gummeroy, northwestern New South Wales families organising. So um, I'm running out of time, but I've, I could um, talk a little bit about the knockout, but um, these are the men who founded the knockout in 1971. So you've got Bob Morgan, Jeep Kennedy, Dan Rose, all from Walgett, and then, um, um, and then Bill Smith and uh, Victor Wright, who come from Kempsey Way. So they, this was a different grouping of families. So those older families who were in the Redfern All Blacks photo, they migrated to the city you know, at, a, at an earlier time, maybe from the 50s, maybe earlier. And these young men um, came at the, at the, you know, in, the, in the context of libera liberation politics and, um, and the sort of opportunities for, for um, you know, political organisation. Um, certainly someone like Bob Morgan, when Charles Perkins came through with the Freedom Rides to Walgett, um, he was influenced by, um, by um, Perkins and, um, and Perkins brought him down to Sydney to work at the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs. And, um, and they wanted to, by, in creating the knockout and with this, um, in, this inaugural um, trophy, um, wanted to reproduce the kind of sense of unity and connection that they had in the bush in, in, um, in the city and... Um, and they were also mindful of lack of um, country-based recruitment um, that, that uh, was a feature of, of, uh, of, of the NRL at the time. So I'm going to finish up there and, um, and I guess open it up for questions or comments. Yes. Thanks very much, Heidi. Thank you. Okay, so next up we have Patrick Skeeney who's giving his talk, Olsen Filipana, pioneer of the Pacifica Revolution. You would have heard me in our last episode say that this was my favourite presentation of the day. 
I was utterly captivated by Patrick's presentation. He has a book coming out on the subject next year, which I think is called The Big O. So look out for that. Uh, it's which I'm just thrilled about. You you wouldn't have necessarily thought that Olson Philippan would be the most likely subject to have his own book written about him. But what a fitting time for a book like this to come out, as you'll hear Patrick talk about in his presentation. Uh, a lot, not not only delving in to that personal history, which touches on a lot of Australian social history at the time, as well as the on-field stuff, but we're really at a moment now where it's a good time to look back on a true pioneer. So, And I know everyone's going to really enjoy this presentation, so I'm going to throw straight to it now. Uh, Patrick Skeeney with Olsen Philippana, pioneer of the Pacifica Revolution. Thanks, Will. Special thanks to Kath for uh, getting us going. And I have to say, I differ from Heidi. I've checked my entire family tree, every branch, and there's no first-grade rugby league players, and I <laughs> sadly maintain that tradition. Um, so today I'm talking about the Big O in the context um, of the Big O and why uh, I thought he was important enough to, uh, to write a book about. Um, Pacific, now the dominant group in the NRL, I think that's no surprise. You add the 48% together with 12% Indigenous and you have 60% Oceania in our game. And that's, um, that's been a huge uh, cultural impact from 1980 when Olsen arrived. It was, uh, it was less than 1%. Uh, three tiers of the Pacific Revolution at grassroots is where I first experienced it. I was uh, spear-tackled in the old spear-tackle days by a big Samoan boy for the John Terry Catholic jaunt against Campbelltown High and uh, pretty much ended my rugby league career. Um, and we certainly didn't have prayers with our opposition and hug after the games. It's, uh, it's a brave new world we're in. Um, it's moved to the NRL and we saw it on the weekend and I wrote a story for The Guardian on um, how important Tonga is to the rugby league, uh, to international rugby league and there's some life uh, in the game yet and may eventually displace origin as the premier form of the game which is very healthy. Uh, so what's happened? Um, we're talking about the intersection of an ancient culture and a modern world. So there's two uh, cultural operating systems, uh, Fa'a Samoa and uh, Anga Whakatonga and they um, have served these communities for a long time and it's, what's mine is yours, it's kind of um, a, a pure and workable form of communism. Extended family over a nuclear family, um, family always above the individual and parents to be paid back for their sacrifices. So income is handed to parents who redistribute to family. There's a warrior culture. And what does that mean? It was explained to me as when you have an island uh, and you have to defend that piece of land, you uh, have to stand your ground. It, it breeds a different, a different type of person. Fathers are unquestioned monarchs, and that brings, um, there's some positives and negatives there. And if you, ultimately, if you avoid your obligations, you're an outcast. We wonder how this um, uh, culture is so sticky. Um, that's ultimately it. It's had a radical impact on rugby league. On the field, that's highly documented. We've had uh, revolutionary moves, the Benji step. Wingers are now bigger than props. And we have the introduction of the power game. The return of religion. Um, we often forget that rugby league was quite a religious game at certain stages. And we're seeing post-game prayer circles, both teams, players looking heavenward for inspiration. Um, a big one for coaches in particular, customised player management. You can't verbally abuse. The old spray will do you a lot worse uh, with uh, Polynesian and Melanesians. Very different views on eye contact for us. Uh, Anglo-Celts, we like to eyeball people, um, but uh, a lot of the Pacific people don't like to look their elders in the eye. Um, it's not a sign of weakness. The family's often brought in, uh, in dispute resolution, and now there are Pacific player welfare managers at clubs. And clubs sometimes sign both brothers in the family because they want that family unity and... In the case of the Bromwich brothers, that really paid off. 
We're seeing a lot of Polynesian tattoos. Musically, R&B is replacing country and rock music when I hear it from, from change rooms. Um, contracts are negotiated and agreed by parents, which is amazing. David Fafita was waiting for his parents to agree on his recent contract. And money's remitted back to the islands, so it's changing these source countries economically. And I've heard figures up to 30% of total GDP coming back through uh, NFL, rugby league and rugby union, big money. And international, we're seeing cultural challenges now being timed into broadcasts um, and fans singing both anthems, which is pretty strange for the Australians to hear Advance Australia fair louder than Tonga's national anthem on the weekend. And there's that underlying feeling of, of, of gratitude and a lot of people uh, of the communities have moved into Western Sydney and um, South East Queensland and uh, feeling the financial benefits. But disruption brings challenges. Uh, we're seeing weight-based juniors. We're seeing a group that sometimes can grow three or four years um, ahead of their peers, um, it, uh, dominating representative spots and losing kids. They've brought in weight-based, and there's some positives and negatives. It's pretty hard for an eight-year-old kid to be playing with 12-year-olds. Um, uh, there's diff a whole different mentality there, um, but it has to be done. There's incompatibility, incompatibility of religion with other values. Um, Israel Folau, who um, you know, is rugby union's issue right now, but he's a hardcore league and with league, and it could be happening with rugby league in future. And family expectations can create pressures. So in extreme cases, this can cause mental health issues and suicide. And um, most of us would remember the well-documented Masisi Fotuakia, who pulled his pecs, um, thought he couldn't provide for his family, and committed suicide. NRL is predicted to be 60% Pacific by 2027, 20, plus Aboriginal 10%. So we're talking um, an almost African-American NBA replication of uh, single groups dominating uh, participation. And you've got the long-term impact of a single community, 1.4% of Australia dominating national sport. Um, I wrote on the, on the weekend, about the weekend, about the non-field roles of under-representation, commentary, coaching, executive, refereeing. It would have been great to have a Polynesian voice in the commentary box the other day. I just heard the same twangy um, repeats of the same, the, the Tongans are going to run out of gas and there was no nuance and we just couldn't really see any other lens. And the old casual racism still um, rears its head. Uh, Coconuts can't play the skill positions, mockery of names, mispronunciation. Uh, one thing I learned on my journey is how important names are to the Polynesian people. It really does. You really are insulting their grandparents and their line of people if you get the name wrong. They're very proud of their names and it's something we have to work on. It's also impacting other contact sports. Super, uh, rugby, um, more than 50% of the Wallabies that went to Japan were from Pacifica, uh, Maori background. And NFL's are an interesting one. They, they split Tonga in two. Uh, the Mormons took over American Samoa. There's now 80 uh, Polynesians in NFL and 200 in Division I college. They're the only new group that has brought uh, anything, new, um, anything new culturally to NFL. And you see turning up to the draft in Lafa Lafa and you're seeing you know, proud people now looking to um, showcase their culture. The pioneers, a pioneers open the door. Why are they important? Um, you can't be it if you can't see it. So Nat Sweetwater Clifton opened the gates for um, African Americans in NBA. Famous Jackie Robinson took his no violence um, uh, vow, um, no matter what he went through. And Al Lolotai, the NFL in 1945, came across from American Samoa, started that tradition. Brian Williams for the All Blacks in 1970. And um, we have on the Aboriginal side, Arthur Beetson and Larry Corral was two big pioneers of the modern era um, that post-date all of the pioneers that um, Heidi spoke of today. Um, and I'm not forgetting Australia's Vanuatu uh, connection. One of the positives to come out of the horrifying blackbirding and slavery, and they're the only group to have a special racial act against them. Um, our poor South Sea Islanders, Kevin Yayi, Walter Mussing, um, not hard to miss him uh, on the top left there. It comes down to Mal Meninga, um, 
and um, there's a lot more uh, South Sea Islanders. There was an amazing... Um, there's a knockout for, they call it the Kanaka knockout. It was on the weekend I was watching on YouTube. Just absolutely fascinating how rugby league is binding these communities together. Pioneers in, in rugby league, and, and I look at Olsen as, as a pioneer because he's a pioneer of the broadcast era, and there was a horrendous one-year rule where you couldn't play for New Zealand or your country. You had to stay a year out. And these guys, when they came to Australia, they kind of disappeared off the map in their countries. But Apisai Toga, 1968 St George. Oscar Danielson pulled out of a, a wharf in Parnell in Auckland to play for the Newtown Jets. Uh, Henry Tartaner for Canterbury and Eddie Heatley, 1972 in Norse. Common denom dom denominator was all big, tough, brawny forwards that fitted that mould of, of rugby league. No backs came through. The brains positions, um, as they're called. So, um, Olsen Filipina arrived in 1980, but you can't talk about a Pacific Island man without uh, talking about his shaping forces. So, his father was Samoan, part of one of the great cultural phenomena to hit uh, New Zealand, the importation of, of uh, Polynesian workers to work in factories and build the roads and build shiny New Auckland. The Māori side, um, his mother was from uh, the Napui people up in Northland, and uh, they're the warriors. Amazing, extraordinary history, and I learned a lot. They beat the British in four out of five of the Northern Wars because they had muskets. The first time the Brits were eyeball to eyeball with the same technology, and they got pantsed by this, uh, this group of people. And New Zealand. So um, the urbanisation of the Māori, the Māori came into the cities. Uh, Polynesians came off the plains, and they all came to uh, Auckland. They carved up some market gardens, which became uh, South Auckland, and this new blended race Pacifica uh, identity rose up. And there's Big Olsen uh, in the middle in front of his family, six brothers, uh, dad on the left, mother on the right. Now, Olsen was um, a rising force. Um, he was captain of New Zealand schoolboys at under 15s, um, but there was the code wars going on. They didn't have uh, rugby league in New Zealand schools uh, for, uh, since 1970, until 1973. And it really was, if you uh, were a good player and you didn't play first 15, you'd get caned, you'd get in detention. Uh, it was a systematic. I lost a... I had the Kiwis on a, a, a higher pedestal than I left with um, at the end because I saw what they did to a lot of these guys just for playing the game they liked. Mark Graham compared being a rugby league player in New Zealand to being like a leper. Um, Mungari East uh, first kicked off in 1967. Uh, 14 teams they started with. They're right in the heart of South Auckland. They're now the biggest club in New Zealand as far as grassroots participation, and um, Olsen was a once-in-a-generation talent. He came over here on the 1978 tour, only player that uh, left with his reputation intact, and uh, Auckland Rugby League chairman said Olsen Philippine is the most sensational and startling footballer we've seen for years. And he really did, um, he really did carve them up. And Joe Stanley, um, he had to make the decision at 16. The school came to his living room and said, uh, league's got to be legal union. And uh, funnily enough, Olsen, since the age of eight, had been funded by the mad butcher, Sir Peter Leach, who uh, some of you may know from the Warriors. He had his first butcher shop in, in Mangari and funded Olsen all the way through. And his dad said, well, that guy gives us meat for our family functions. We're going to stay with league over union. Union's given us nothing. So um, that's one rare one. And Joe Stanley, um, 27 Test All Blacks, had absolutely played alongside Olsen. And so we all used to follow and feed off his devastation and carnage. Um, and another big difference is, um, and it's documented elsewhere, but Australia had the Catholic Church behind them. New Zealand didn't. Catholic Church was behind Rugby Union there. So we've had this um, underpinning the muscular Christianity movement driving league to where it is in Australia. Uh, he also was the first uh, Mangariis player to become a Kiwi, so he's enshrined in that club's um, mythology. And he came over to play destroyed uh, Riverina at Leichhardt and won a $750 TV and called his mum and said, 
Mum, we've won a mic- we've we've got a Pakia TV, which was code for colour back then. Or everyone just. Said- <laughs> Uh, throw a net over him. That's what it got to as far as the New Zealand uh, journalists. They said, we can't stop this guy. He's running amok. He won all the awards. Um, and there he is, played 100 games. And one of the journalists said, um, just throw a net over him. He took Mangari to the final of the Fox Memorial Cup in 78. But it was Graham Lowe who coached uh, against him in the Odahu team, uh, whose, whose simple strategy was four men on Olsen and we'll clam him down. So crossing the threshold, uh, they won a, a case of beer for um, Man of the Match in New Zealand. Man can't live on beer alone. So he finally, after two years, finally succumbed and signed for the Balmain Tigers family. Forced him to. He didn't want to come over. He didn't like what he saw about Australia in 1978 and saw the difference in race relations between New Zealand and Australia. He got verbally abused in an AMCO Cup game and said, I don't want to come over. But he didn't have a choice. Under this Fa'a Samoa operating code, he does what his parents tell him. So Olsen arrives, 1980. Three other Polynesian players um, in rugby league at that time. Uh, Kurt Sorensen notes the difference between them and Olsen. I had three things going for me, white skin, an English-sounding name, and I'd fight, someone if, I'd fight if someone had a go at me. Olsen had none of those. He was an immediate target with his skin colour, his name, his look, and Olsen promised his mother on the airport that he wouldn't fight back and give Polynesians a bad name. So he had a touch of Jackie Robinson about him where he would try and get them back legally, but he just didn't want Polynesians to get a reputation as brawlers. So here we are, the Galloping Garbo. Two weeks in, he got his... Um, he got his uh, garbage run, which he's still doing now, one of Cindy's longest-serving garbos. Luckily for him, the technology's kept up with his knees and uh, hips, and he's in the truck now. It's like playing Space Invaders, but there he is doing Artie Beetson's, two of the great pioneers, um, doing his bin run when Artie Beetson lived in, in, in West Ride. Um, and when Olsen arrived, it was different. Um, there's one game against St George when he first there, and the camera's in there um, in the change rooms and taking an Olsen, you know, putting his hand against the camera and... Um, the camera goes to Wayne Pearce and he's beaming. He's sort of a, um, a pioneer of personal branding was, uh, was, was, was Wayne Pearce. And um, he just hated media the whole time and he hid in the toilets the very first time. Him and Percy Knight hid in the toilets. They wouldn't come out till the media gone. So he was um, a little bit different to, to today, but he hated, hated and distrusted the media all along. He couldn't handle how they could be his friend one week and then write something bad about him the next. He didn't quite understand that. So he, had, he was under Dennis Tuddy in 1980, and Dennis Tuddy made the final of the two uh, cups, midweek and uh, the, the, the two cups, but he, they ended up coming uh, 11th, and he was tossed for cranky Frankie Stanton. Interestingly, at the end of 1980, Graham Lowe was also in the running for this role, and it would be fascinating to see how Olsen would have gone under the cultural competence of uh, a Kiwi coach. A homesickness. Olsen was dreadfully homesick pretty much from the time uh, he arrived. Um, he used to spend up to $800 a month on his phone bill back in the days when it was timed. And uh, on the right there, that's what happens if you don't manage homesickness. Tana Umaga was a leaguey. Um, he's more well-known for playing 74 tests for the All Blacks and uh, being uh, New Zealand All Blacks' first uh, Polynesian captain. But he trialled for three weeks in the Newcastle Knights and uh, left dreadfully homesick and well, we lost him from the game. So they manage these things now, but he was uh, grown up full, full, full leaguey um, and we lost him. And Olsen um, had dreadful homesickness over here. So 1981, he had his first fight. He was trying to avoid, but Paul Taylor um, took him up one day, and that was a day that changed, um, changed Olsen's life. He got in his first fight, and uh, he also then got uh, racially abused, him and his wife, by the fans, and he copped a full count of KB to the head, and uh, it was a turning point for him. So Wayne Wiggum says, in his first year at Balmain, Olsen was very social. Then under Frank Stant, he just dropped out stopped coming to the pub and would race into the change rooms after training and matches and leave before some of us had gotten back in there. He became a recluse, 
under today's diagnosis, it would be uh, simple depression um, away from family and having a terrible time. And Olsen always looked at the coach as a second father. All coaches are second fathers now. You lose the change rooms, but back then um, it was an egalitarian, one-size-fits-all one overhang from the white Australia um, time. And no one got the customised man, man management. It's very normal today. You don't shout at some guys. Some guys enjoy kick up the arse. Well, that's their thing, and you just got to customise your response. And also racism. Um, also, they never experienced it before in New Zealand. Never. Of course, casual racism, but never open to the face. And also from opposing players. It was a much more integrated league, the Fox Memorial Cup. And Olsen marvelled at how Larry Coral was able to take it. Um, he copped terrifying. And Olsen also got called an Aboriginal. They didn't know what a Polynesian was. Um, and uh, so he copped a bit what Larry took, but Olsen says it's remarkable. But Larry uh, Coral grew up with it, and it was normalised in his life, sadly, but it was, it was new to Olsen. And again, uh, reiterate the point, when Polynesians, um, when you're racist to a Polynesian, you're basically insulting their parents um, and, their, and their family line. It's very, very offensive, even the um, mocking of names. And it's interesting seeing the culture clash. We had Billy Birmingham had eight number one uh, records in a row uh, mocking people's surnames. And never did we think while we were laughing along that people could be you know, seriously offended by that. And it's just one of those um, unconscious culture clashes. Um, and Tony Kemp, even in 1988, uh, the, the first five-eighths to follow in Olsen's fo uh, footsteps at Newcastle Knights still doesn't turn up to their reunions now. And he had fistfights with his teammates because they came out and openly um, you know, used some very terrible language. Olsen starts a family in 91 and has family issues. He's sending all of his money home, um, squirrelling off a bit, basically keeping his garbo run, living like a pauper, and his father has a terrible gambling habit and squanders it all. Um, there's an article recently came out in New Zealand documenting this is one of the, uh, the downsides if the money's not managed correctly. Um, it can leave people destitute. And I found it quite amazing that Izzy Folau, when he signed his million-dollar contract with um, the Broncos, was receiving $150 a week, um, and uh, had to ask his dad permission to go to the movies. So it's a, it's a very, very different world where, you know, I really didn't take any direction from my father at the, after the age of 18. I was, I was on my own, and that was just uh, the way the culture was. 1982, um, his best year. Um, he was voted hardest man to tackle in the Rugby League Week survey. But the whole time, he's fighting with Frank Stanton. Frank Stanton's trying to um, turn him into a marathon runner. And uh, Olsen wasn't a, a guy for long distance. He was sprints. He loved tennis. He loved anything uh, chasing a ball. And he didn't, they didn't train like that in New Zealand. They played a bit of touch and just worked through their moves. But um, Frank Stanton's success in his world, he's in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, and he can't be denied, came from um, being a very strict uh, disciplinarian. So he had a serious clash of two cultures. So, yeah, 82 was his, uh, his best year, and he really shone... Um, Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Kiwi reunions, it wasn't always sad times for Olsen. When these Kiwis all came together, it was heaven, so they're playing North Sydney. Uh, guys like Mark Broadhurst, Fred Arcoy, James Lulawai, they came down here, they found it revolting. 
uh, all said they had a terrible time, went to England, and England was a lot more respectful then. And we forget that before, Australia and New Zealand didn't even have a trade treaty until 1983. New Zealand oriented towards England, and we oriented towards England, but we didn't have that much going on. So um, two distinct cultures behaviourally uh, had developed. Uh, one, you know, quite loud and, and abusive, uh, particularly in the crowds, trying to G each other up and saying something worse and worse. And uh, for Olsen, it was heavenly to get together as New Zealand. All prided themselves on being gentlemen. Um, and Fred Elkai had a terrible time at North, and, uh, and we lost him, but Olsen stuck it around. Olsen was the first to show culture. Some of those early pioneers, it was dial down your culture, fit in, but here he is. The first time you'll ever see a Polynesian on the left-hand side in his footy cart, he's got his pucker shells on, and then going to the next level um, with his Mr. T mohawk. And he loved Mr. T because Mr. T was scared of flying. Olsen had aviophobia and uh, was absolutely terrible. And the journos made a lot of fun of that as if it's a weakness, but it's a serious disease. And uh, as they say, there's no atheists in turbulence. We all... We all, suffered at, we all suffered at some level. Um, 1983, his depression got the worst, just the game before the... So every year he's playing, the Kiwis games are his heaven. He's getting away from Frank Stanton, who's verbally abusing him, talking a million miles an hour, and he's depressed, dropping him for not wearing his polo. Famous time in 1983 when he turned up at the St George game straight off the garbage truck and sprinting across in his singlet and shorts and everyone making fun of him, but that... For Frank, that was the ultimate breach of discipline. So a lot of times Olsen got dropped, had nothing to do with his form. He's in this constant battle um, with the coach. In, enter Graham Lowe, super coach. Coached at Odahu, Brisbane won and Brisbane North. One of the great upsets of all time, uh, Australian Rugby League. North went from second last. 26 players walked out of their team. You know, a rookie from New Zealand comes across, never played first grade. Um, and uh, took them, to, brought Mark Graham, Stan Napper, Dylan Napper's father with him and they won the premiership in their second year. Did miracles for the Kiwis and stopped the right was important. Australia had, had locked between 71 and 83. Australia, had, no, New Zealand didn't win a game. Absolute second-class citizen, 14 matches in a, a row. Terrible. They used to wear Australian jerseys to training, and, and Graham Lowe came in, wasn't really afflicted by the scar tissue, hadn't been a player, but his most important uh, addition was personalised man management. He's a great planner, and he used new principles, cultural competence with his Pacific players, Empathy, vulnerability, and love. He loved his players, and his players felt he was like a second father. Aroha is the concept in New Zealand. It's normal. They talk about it over there. Uh, it's not a word you hear bandied much around rugby league circles, but he brought it in. He got extraordinary results from all his, all his players. And pretty much only Jack Gibson matched, uh, uh, who was Graham Lowe's um, mentor. Jack Gibson was the one Aussie coach, and Roy Masters, to a degree, that had um, that level of empathy and vulnerability. He knew the happier the guy was off the field, the, happy, the better you're going to, the more gratitude you'll get with him on the field. And you saw Des Hasler yesterday, I saw a piece in the paper, went down and spent an hour with his player in jail. Um, so people are getting it now. Craig Bellamy goes and meets the pastor, he goes to church, he goes to the house for, for, for dinner. It's a natural thing for coaches now, it wasn't back then. 84 test series against Great Britain, Graham Lowe selected Olsen at 5'8", Olsen crushed the hapless Brits, first time they'd ever lost 3-0 in a series. And there he is meeting David Longy, who was New Zealand's first rugby league president in a while after Piggy Muldoon. He's from Mangari as well as Olsen. And his first three years as a, as a trial lawyer were up in Kaikohe, where Olsen's from, three hours to the north, and he had 90% Māori casework up there. So we're talking about the first Pacific competent uh, PM. Um, had a touch of the Kevin 07s about him, um, where it was more exciting voting him in than actually um, living under him. <laughs> 
And then Olsen finally uh, breaks with, um, breaks with uh, Frank Stanton, enough's enough, and goes to East under Artie Beeson. You'd think Arthur Beeson, being an Aboriginal man, would understand uh, cultural competence, uh, but not, not the case. Uh, a lot of the players say Arthur really couldn't ma- handle difference. He was brought up in the one-size-fits-all system, and there was a little bit of, uh, of Arthur in Olsen as well. Arthur wasn't a big roadrunner and a big trainer. And, um, and sometimes we loathe in others what we see in ourselves. But they, di- they didn't really kick on. So he's sitting in reserve grade at East. And he's back to join his magical Kiwis. And this is a team that will go down in the generations as having turned uh, rugby league around. Captain by Mark Graham, coached by Graham Lowe. Um, amazing mix. This is the new New Zealand on show after, after Robert Muldoon, who had tried to reshape New Zealand back to white and provincial. But this was the reality. This was New Zealand's new identity. After Longy came in, the Rainbow Warrior... Um, we have uh, this first team reflecting the new outward-looking New Zealand. And it was amazing that, uh, I didn't know this, but in the 1976 Montreal Games, 30 uh, different African nations boycotted because of New Zealand. Um, really amazed me. People wearing New Zealand flags on their backpacks now to get around the world, and they're considered fluffy and diplomatic. But they were world pariahs at one stage. It's amazing. Uh, their brand took a, a real shellacking. I didn't know that. And the power of mum. Uh, Graham Lowe, um, when he picked uh, Olsen in reserve grade at 5 8 against Wally Lewis, the Journos had a field there. Who's this fat reserve grader? Garbo, how can he play? Olsen called, uh, Graham Lowe called Olsen's mum and talked to her for an hour on the phone. No Australian coach would ever dream of doing that. But he knows the power mums have over Polly Boys. And he, um, he convinced her that she could beat Wally Lewis. Graham Lowe goes back and says, spoke to your mum, she thinks you're going to do him and he'll give you a clip on the ear if you don't. <laughs> Olsen comes out like a man, man of the series. First game against Brisbane, the Aussies did not know what hit them. And it was a Pyrrhic victory. The Australians won 2-1, but Terry Fernley copped it. And Graham Lowe smartly exposed the fault line between uh, New South Wales and Queensland Rugby League when he forced four positional changes after they won. And that's something you don't do. John Coffey, perhaps the greatest compliment is that Olsen Philippone was completely ignored by Wally Lewis in two autobiographies written about his career. I managed to catch up with Wally, and uh, there's some amazing things in the book, and, um, and it's you know, just amazing seeing a couple of old... And they hadn't talked to each other, so what happened after the first test, Olsen went around the match. Olsen got brushed by Wally, went to shake hands, got brushed by Wally, raised the black flag and crushed him in the next, uh, in the next two games and really fired him up. Um, there's a lot of... So Wally's... I won't say apologise in the book. I'll leave that to you guys. No spoiler alerts. But uh, Wally's, um, you know, had to brush with mortality, and he's a great, humble man now. He's lost that competitive instinct that got him to the to the top, which is great. And the third test deliverance. The Kiwis hadn't won at Carlaw Park since 1971. They crushed the Aussies 18 nil. Um, you know, a piece of Olsen magic turned the, the game around. It was amazing, and that was the birth uh, of, of of the 10 years of respect that led to the Warriors. Um, uh, begrudgingly accepting that New Zealand should have their own team and not just become a farm for us to hothouse and stock up, stockpile talent for our own clubs. 86, 87, he went to Norths. Um, Andrew writes about uh, Frank Stanton's time at North better in a way that I could never cover in his magnificent book. Um, Andrew, that was uh, you know, really... You said what I didn't need to say, but he was just an, a man caught out of times and was trying to turn them into roadrunners. Um, really shame, because Olsen in 1986, Frank came in 87 and just shoved Olsen in reserve grade. It was terrible um, to have the number four ranked 5-8th in the world sitting in reserve grade because of a personal beef. But in 86, under Chicken Norton, Olsen played well. It was the first coach, I think, that really got him since Tuddy. And, um, you know, just gave him a ball and said, I'm not going to road run, you play here. And Olsen started turning up to goal, goal kicking practice early, which had never happened before. He hated goal kicking because he says that's when you get abuse. Well, I don't get paid anymore and people call me names. So he had this famous two-step 
And the forwards hated him because he didn't take any time at all. But he said, the less time I'm taking, the less I'm going to be abused. Um, 986 versus Kangaroos, his last hurrah, 29 test career, came to an end. He scored a first try in the first test. Another a brilliant piece of work, but they got overcome. The Aussies had regrouped um, under Ferner and were a much more cohesive unit, and, the, and, and they exposed New Zealand. Um, after that, they sacked Graham Lowe, so Olsen was out, very loyal, said, I don't want to play um, with you guys anymore. And in 1998, he went bush. He went and played for Barrow, all the New Zealand... Um, Players at the time would do two or three years. Henry, all the four we, uh, we mentioned there, except Apasitogo, uh, rest in peace, who, who died from uh, an infection from coral um, back in Fiji. But that was the thing. And going back through those old rugby league weeks, you can see how big country rugby league was. All these captain, coach, advertisements, page after page. Uh, really amazing. So he went bush to play for Barrel, Brad, Don Bradman's old club. And then another great tradition now, and we're seeing it, it used to be at the end of their careers, but now some of them at the start is returning to play for your ancestral homeland. So in 1988, Olsen was asked to come back and play for Samoa in a Pacific Cup in Apia uh, with, six, with six teams. And he won the man of the tournament, but he insisted that half the team had to be from the local Samoan boys and couldn't just pluck them out of South Auckland and Sydney. And he got so much love from the Samoans there. And there he is. He's still even uh, at the end there. Um, and what happened in 1988? He went to trial for the Balmain Tigers under Warren Ryan. And it came down that uh, basically they said the game's left behind. And maybe it's a good thing that Olsen's still playing with that old amateur Kiwi spirit didn't play under the new data-driven, sanitised world of the NRL. So it was a nice transition piece. But he trained there and played a few games with Gary Freeman, who went on to become the first Kiwi to win the Dally M. And Freeman said, you know, the players don't listen to what the media said. The players love playing with Olsen more than any other player. And then in 1990, right Eastwood Hawks on hallowed ground here. Olsen... Uh, it's pulled out of retirement, captains them in their first year, pulls off some Olsen magic, and ride Eastwood Hawks win in their first year in the old uh, New South Wales Cup. So we finally got that piece of silverware after all that time in his last game as a pro. Um, Hawks disappeared, uh, but like Lazarus, re-emerged this year to, to win. Uh, another great story of uh, the return of a, of, of a dead club. So just some views on Olsen, um, just what people said. So Wally Lewis, Olsen's strength was far greater than anyone else I faced. He was fantastic and demanded his opponents be at their best because he was 100% committed every time. He made life difficult for every player, and I don't know anyone that played against him that enjoyed it. Wayne Pearce, um, Olsen loved Wayne Pearce, said there's not a racist bone in his body, but Wayne Pearce used to put a lot of pressure on Olsen. Olsen was a hot and cold player and enigma. On his day, he'd destroy defences or make game-changing tackles. As captain, I would go to him when we were in trouble. On other days, he wasn't effective and we couldn't work out why. But when he was on, we were always a good chance of winning. Um, and I think we've established why Olsen wasn't on. He was having a miserable time. It's very difficult to change the world when you don't want to leave your bedroom. The Kiwi View. Richard Beck has written 40 rugby league books um, and, and various. Enigma was often used to describe Olsen's strengths as a shit word. They didn't know how to use him or fit him into their system, and it was code for they couldn't figure him out. He was a trailblazer for Polynesians. Mark Graham, captain, New Zealand player of the century. On his day, there was no better player. If the clubs in Sydney treated Olsen the way New Zealand did, he could have beaten sides all by himself, and he still terrorised him in Sydney despite all the crap. We used to joke that Olsen was so good that he could make love standing on a hammock. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what they get up to in New Zealand in their spare time. <laughs> Daryl Williams. I find Daryl Williams and Tony Kemp too interesting because we're looking at who's the pioneer. And those early guys, um, this was the first of the televised era. You used to have to get your, um, go and get your rugby leagues game from the uh, video store. They would come in on the Thursday, so someone would obviously get a copy and make them. So you really had to work hard to be a rugby league fan in New Zealand. Darrell Williams, um, first uh, Kiwi to win a grand final in 86 with Manly. Olsen was an inspiration for my sacrifices. Sure enough, through the different generations, a trickle's become an avalanche. 
Tony Kemp, no other Kiwi has ever dominated an Australian mortal, immortal like Olsen did. And he did it to the greatest player ever. Sir Graham Lowe, Olsen was a far pathfinder, the first to show what Polynesians could do, and he was a face of hope for his community. And I'll finish off on uh, this one. It's Olsen crossed the code lines. He was Jonah Lomu's hero, and we forget Jonah Lomu up to the age of 13 was a leaguey for the Manukau Magpies. And Aroni Clark played 10, um, 10 tests for the All Blacks and called me and insisted he be in the book to talk about how much Olsen influenced them on the streets of South Auckland. We talk about how we as Pacific people navigated the oceans of the Pacific by just using stars. Olsen was like those stars for us. He dared to open up the pathway. Thank you very much. And finally today we have Guy Hansen, friend of the RLD, who is giving his talk, the 1989 Premiership, Greatest Grand Final Ever. So for anyone who was at the National Library in September to hear Guy give this talk the first time round, or listen to the live stream as I did, this is a slight variation on that talk, uh, definitely worth a second listen for anyone who did listen, and, and especially for anyone who didn't hear it the first time. So Raiders fans, you'll really enjoy reliving the memories. Tigers fans, see how far into it you can get. I think Guy's very even-handed in his delivery. And I don't want to link everything back to our Super League series, but I think there is a lot uh, in what Guy talks about that builds on some of the things we've discussed, particularly in relation to Canberra. So uh, a very enjoyable listen, and I'll throw straight to Guy. Thank you very much. Um, I suppose uh, in keeping with declaring our affiliations as we start our talks, I can, I can say that I, I grew up in walking distance of Cumberland Oval and I'm, I'm, I'm a, 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 a long-term Parramatta Eels fan, so I bring a blue and gold perspective on everything I see in rugby league. So my paper today is, uh, is about the, um, the 30th anniversary of the 1989 Grand Final uh, which was uh, the Canberra Raiders defeated the Balmain Tigers 19-14 to 14, um, at the Sydney Football Stadium. Now, <clears throat> this game's very interesting because it, it is sometimes, or it, it, it was often cited as being one of the best rugby league grand finals ever played. Um, and I, I, whenever you hear that claim, you, you're quite rightly sceptical. How would you know? How can you compare across periods? But it does consistently... Uh, be voted on as one of the best grand finals and, and many pundits and commentators cited as one of the best games. So um, to answer this question of why is it considered one of the best games uh, in, in rugby league history, I've, I've, I've turned to the work to a work on comparative mythology um, by Joseph Campbell, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Now, this is a book which uh, is often described as almost like a textbook for Hollywood screenwriters. Uh, and it, it's, it's one in which um, Campbell argues uh, that there's a basic narrative pattern across human societies uh, which, which generates these very powerful stories. And I'll give you a famous quote from the book. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. And I couldn't help but think that this, this description maps fairly well onto the, the victory of the Raiders uh, in 1989. Um, you can certainly see that the grand final victory in that, that game was genuinely heroic. And I can't think of a better description of the 1980s New South Wales Rugby League competition as a region of supernatural wonder. And what could be more decisive 
than winning the Premiership and returning home with the trophy to present to your adoring fans in Canberra and Queanbeyan. So what I'm sort of saying here, and I think there is some scepticism uh, amongst uh, experts today about how right Campbell was and his ideas, but there's no doubt about it. There's a sort of a, a great narrative template to the story of the, the Raiders' vic victory in 1989, which makes it a great story to tell again and again. So I think it's much more... It's almost how good a story it makes rather than necessarily the athleticism or skill on display in the game. And I think it's in that way, as a story, that the 1989 grand final stands out. So let's, have a, let's go back to 1989 and have a look at how the Raiders came to be there. Um, the library is a great place uh, to reconstruct this story because it, it holds all sorts of wonderful resources like, because uh, I work at the National Library of Australia, holds wonderful resources like um, a complete run of Rugby League Week and Big League, um, uh, as well as many of the memoirs um, from uh, players of the time. So we'll go past this lovely photograph of the grand final victory. So there's Big League. Um, and, and then, of course, these are some of the memoirs which I had the pleasure of reading when researching this paper. So um, uh, all of this, this, this is, uh, you know, speaks to the, the theme of today's conference, which is about trying to stimulate some interest in rugby league history and also the great sources that you have to explore and the great stories you'll find if you do spend some time researching them. So let's go back to how the Raiders came to be in the competition. So uh, the Raiders joined the New South Wales Rugby League in 1982, along with the Illawarra Steelers. Um, these were the first teams outside of Sydney to join the competition since Newcastle's short stint in 1908. Um, they were followed in 1988 by the Broncos, um, the Gold Coast Giants and the Newcastle Knights. So in a few short years, you see the New South Wales Rugby League competition had expanded um, from being a, a small suburban, very concentrated suburban Sydney competition with 12 teams into a national competition with 16 teams. So you can see that this moment that the, uh, the Raiders win is actually a moment of major change in, in rugby league. Um, in some ways it's surprising that Canberra was the first interstate team to join the competition um, because Canberra was not traditionally seen as a rugby league stronghold. Indeed, both soccer and AFL had higher participation rates. And historically, Canberra had much stronger cultural connections with Melbourne than Sydney. And that was due to the fact that when uh, the capital was created in, in, in 1901, it originally sat in Melbourne up until 1927, and then they moved the Commonwealth Departments to Canberra in 1927. And that meant that Canberra had very strong links um, with, uh, with Melbourne and, and, and had a huge uh, supporter base for Victoria football. And, of course, it's still very popular uh, in Canberra, the, um, the AFL is very popular today. So, um, but in contrast to Canberra itself, Canberra's near neighbour, Queanbeyan, was very much a rugby league town. Queanbeyan Leagues Club realised that a team from Queanbeyan was unlikely to be admitted to a national competition. A team from Canberra, however, could be marketed as representing the national capital and could attract support throughout New South Wales. Um, at the time, the Queanbeyan Leagues Club was plotting to join the New South Wales Rugby League they were able to point to the success of a re relatively new basketball franchise, the Canberra Cannons. The Cannons were one of the foundation clubs of the National Basketball League, which was established in 1979. And the Cannons did very well in this competition and attracted strong um, support in the local community, going on to win titles in 1983, 1984 and 1988. Now you can see Phil Smythe, who was one of uh, the Cannons' stars. So the Cannons provided proof that Canberra could support a successful 
sporting franchise. The New South Wales Rugby League selected Canberra over bids from Campbelltown, Newcastle and the Central Coast. The new team was called the Canberra Raiders and would be based at Searford Oval in Queanbeyan. It wasn't until 1990 that the Raiders relocated to Bruce Stadium, where they play today. Initially, Queanbeyan and the surrounding areas provided the base level of support for the club while its popularity began to grow within Canberra. And here's just a shot of um, Searford Oval. So, um, of course, at this stage, um, coming from outside of Sydney, the Raiders and also Canberra have not been perhaps the most fashionable destination for Sydney Rugby League players um, looking to make a career. Uh, Canberra tended to draw on player talent from Queensland and from country New South Wales. Um, and later on, Canberra was um, a trailblazer in using um, Pacifica talent as well. Um, the Raiders began to build a successful team with these players. Uh, they struggled in their first season, winning the wooden spoon, then quickly rose up the ladder and until 1970, 1987 they reached their first grand final where they were defeated by Manly 18-8. to um, But they had managed to demonstrate they were a genuine contender. So actually that's going back to the 1982 Raiders and um, this is uh, Wayne Bennett standing with the team uh, just after their defeat in uh, 1987. Um, so... These uh, early years of the Raiders um, coincided with a period of rapid change in Canberra. In 1988, the new Parliament House um, opened uh, and the Federal Parliament began implementing self-government in Canberra, um, which, of course, I, I know is not necessarily a topic of great interest outside of Canberra, but it was a, really quite a strange period in Canberra's <laughs> history. The first, because the Canberrans had actually voted against self-government in a referendum and the gov Federal Government had basically said, well, you're having it anyway. Um, so the first uh, ACT election was held on the 4th of March, just at the beginning of the football season in 1989. Just, and Canberrans and showed their resistance uh, with, uh, with creating a range of ridiculous um, political parties. And the, uh, the ballot paper uh, was, was almost a metre wide, and there were 17 candidates representing 22 political parties. Parties included the Sun-Ripened Warm Tomato Party, the Party Party Party, and surprise party and no self-government party. But they did manage to form a government after this, and, uh, and so self-government began. But it seemed, it's, it's really interesting to remember. I bring this up because I think the creation and success of the Raiders is very important in making Canberra feel like a city. And, uh, and it does coincide with this moment of um, uh, the creation of a city identity. So um, let's come in, pull the focus in a little bit more now and um, look at the 1989 season. 16 teams were competing in the expanded competition. After 22 rounds, South Sydney were minor premiers, followed by Penrith in second position, Balmain in third, and Canberra in fourth position, and Brisbane and Cronulla drawn for fifth. The fact that the Raiders had made it into the final five was something of a surprise. In round 18, the Raiders were in seventh position and in danger of missing the finals. The Raiders began a heroic five-game winning streak, which took them to the fourth position on the table. The Raiders' winning streak continued into the final series, first with a victory over Cronulla, then Penrith, and then defeating the minor premiers South Sydney to earn a place in the grand final against Balmain. While the Raiders were considered lucky to have made it, Balmain was seen as a team very much deserving of victory. The previous year, they'd made it to the grand final, only to lose to Canterbury 28-12. to There was a consensus amongst rugby league pundits that it was Balmain's turn in 1989. Almost that idea of you've got to lose one to win one. Uh, and this, this, when you think about it, this 
bias towards Balmain was not surprising. It was the Sydney club. Canberra, while a popular club in some ways, was still seen as a, an interloper. Um, I suppose uh, the face of Balmain at this time was Wayne Junior Pearce. Um, Junior had grown up near Leichhardt Oval and had dreamed of playing for the Tigers from when he was a boy. As a teenager, he'd sold hot dogs at the ground and played for the local teams. He'd come to be seen as the personification of all that was good about Balmain. The Tigers coach, um, Warren Ryan, used Pierce's local hero, hero status to motivate the team. If you read many of the articles from this time, you, you see um, uh, Ryan keeps saying, we need to do it for Junior. Ryan kept saying that to journalists. It kept being printed and it became a kind of a story at the time. Now, so this is the hero figure on the Balmain side in my kind of mythological story is Wayne Jr. Pierce. The mythological hero, hero on the Raiders side is, of course, Big Mal. Um, so Mal was a product of uh, Queensland and joined the Raiders in 1985. He was already considered one of the best players in Australia. He was famous for having broken his arm four times in 18 months. The first occasion was at Searford Oval in 1987 in a collision with a goalpost. He damaged it again in a game against Penrith later in 1987. He broke it again in a sevens tournament in February 1988 and again playing for Australia against the rest of the world in late 1988. The fact that he was playing in the grand final at all seemed like quite an amazing feat. Of course, Junior and Mal were not the only stars playing that day. If you look at the team lists, you can see there were many superstars playing that day. So there, there we go. Um, from Rugby League Week, you can see the details of um, the players. So, um, so you can see Gary Belcher, Laurie Daly, John Ferguson, Ricky Stewart, Glenn Lazarus and Kevin Walters, Bradley Clyde on the Raiders, and of course Ben Elias, Gary Jack, Steve Roach, Paul Sirenin, to name a few. So you can see a lot of the big names of Rugby League are on the field that day. Sorry, excuse me. A good example of the strong support that the Tigers had in Sydney Rugby League media can be seen in the pre-game coverage by Rugby League Week. The grand final week cover was very pro-Balmain. It referenced early um, Balmain victories in 1939 and 1969. The paper's uh, tipsters, Norm Tasker and Tony Durkin, both tipped Balmain to win. Durkin's match preview came with a dash of moral judgment. To quote, Balmain are experienced, hungry and disciplined. Canberra are experienced and hungry, but substitute much of their discipline with flair. In rugby league culture, this was a scathing comment. The Raiders were showy compared to the tough, disciplined Tigers. The favouritism shown to Balmain was not surprising, given that they were one of the foundation clubs of the league, um, with a history going back to 1908. Canberra, in contrast, were seen as interlopers by Sydney fans. Canberra had only recently joined a competition, and its playing ranks consisted of country footballers and Queenslanders. While many fans supported the growth of the game, they were not keen to see the trophy leave Sydney. So let's come in to what happened on the actual day. Let's sharpen our focus again. So uh, here you can see the grand final program um, as published in Big League. Uh, uh, so I'd note that Parramatta were, um, I think, defeated by North Sydney that day in reserve grade. Um, so uh, it, it's... Um, Let's go forward here. So uh, I've just lost my place slightly there. Um, yes, here we go. Um, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the day was the um, pre-match entertainment or grand final spectacular titled, it was titled Save Our Future. 
was billed as a spectacular musical tribute to the environment. In front of a large inflatable plastic tree and surrounded by dancers wearing costumes possibly inspired by bats or possibly moths, John Williamson performed Rip Rip Woodship. Debbie Byrne sang Nature's Lament. For the Rugby League, this was a strong political statement. Um, this was a year which had seen an extended campaign in Tasmania to stop the Wesley Vale pulp mill. This highly political performance provoked uh, a lot of controversy and um, in uh, Rugby League Week, super coach Jack Gibson wrote, uh, Rugby League should stay within its bounds. After the pre-game entertainment, fans were shown a video message from Tina Turner. There's Tina. Whilst I was not able to find the text of what Tina said to fans, it was clear she'd become a big fan of rugby league. Earlier in the year, New South Wales had contracted Tina to promote the game. The initial campaign featured her song, What You Get Is What You See, which was followed in 1990 with, of course, the famous Simply The Best, um, you know, which I think many people consider one of the best sporting ad campaigns in Australian history. Um, so... Whilst Tina was addressing the fans, the teams were preparing in their dressing rooms for the final game. At three, Debbie Byrne sang the national anthem and the game began soon after. I'm not going to give a detailed description of the game. Uh, and indeed, when I gave this talk in Canberra, I played a large section of the game and I came away with the impression they'd much rather me to have sat down and just played the whole game. <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry you stuck with me. So, and as, as, as you were all um, aficionados of rugby league, I know you'll most probably be quite familiar with the game. It was a gripping match where Balmain achieved an early lead only to see it ground down by Canberra. There's several sliding door moments which provide fans opportunities to argue about what could have happened. Mal Meninga manages to ankle-tap Neil inches from the line. Benny Elias takes a shot at field goal, only to see it bounce off the post. Um, the game is set in to extra time with a heroic try by Chica Ferguson. To add to the drama, um, of course, this is one of the famous incidents in the game, to add to the drama, Warren Ryan made the decision to take his star players, Paul Sirenen and Steve Roach, uh, off, off, the, off the field. He wanted, he wanted to get some fresh defensive. He thought he had the game wrapped up and get some defenders on. So Ciro and Blocker were forced to sit out extra time on the, ben on the benches while watching their team defended. So the game was forced into extra time and he, two of his best players were sitting on the sideline watching and they don't look very happy about it. Um, and of course you can contrast that to the, to the bench of the Canberra Raiders and they seem to be quite happy with what's going on. So in the end, um, Steve Jackson scored the winning try to win the Premiership for the Raiders, 19-14. Um, and um, I'm just going to show a few shots here which I think capture the sort of storytelling power of this game. So you, you, can, you can see, of course, uh, uh, the famous uh, Gladiators trophy um, being lifted by Laurie there, uh, by Mao and, Mao and Bradley there. And um, uh, Bob Hawke, of course, he used to love being at grand final uh, trophy presentations at this time. Um, and then the ubiquitous uh, team celebration, and you can see the JJ Gilton and Shield still being presented at grand finals at this, at this point in time. And um, you can compare these moments of great celebration, of course, with uh, how Benny was feeling and how Wayne Junior Pierce was feeling. So... <laughs> Um, I, I mean, you'll get this at every grand final um, where one time his team is erupting with joy and the other team is, 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 is usually in, literally in tears. So I think that's why grand finals make such great storytelling moments. So, of course, coming back to my idea of uh, 
what it meant for Canberra. Uh, the Raiders' victory uh, was a source of great pride um, in Canberra, and um, and there was massive eruption of uh, spontaneous eruption of celebration in Canberra City. And as a Parramatta fan, I can remember when the um, Parramatta defeated uh, Newtown, and then of course the Parramatta fans descended on Cumberland Oval to burn down the stand. Um, Raiders fans were much more uh, civilised and uh, were able to participate in civic celebration without destroying public property. Um, but here you can see um, Mal um, in the Civic Square with 5,000 screaming fans. And I love this photograph because you see that the, the uh, Winfield Cup is wrapped in a towel, and that's because um, the, um, in, a, in a victory parade from Queen Bianne to uh, Canberra, Laurie had dropped the trophy from an open-topped car and smashed the base on the ground, so they quickly wrapped the, the trophy, and so the sponsors' benefits were completely eradicated, which I quite <laughs> like. But it, maybe it was a guerrilla anti-tobacco campaign going on at the time. But apparently they had to repair the trophy quite quickly uh, so that it could go to a special dinner at the Prime Minister's. Um, and I actually got the chance to look at the trophy once on a visit to Phillips Street, and you can see a crack where they did the repair work. So... There's evidence in the material culture of what happened. Okay, so um, so this game in 1989 was the first occasion that a team from outside Sydney won the premiership. The implications of um, the national expansion of the game, which had begun earlier in the 80s, were suddenly very real. The competition no longer belonged to Sydney. The Raiders' victory was a harbinger of things to come as the competition continued to expand and other interstate teams would come to dominate the competition. Canberra would win more, as would Brisbane and eventually Melbourne. So you have... Uh, um, oh, that's that's uh, coverage from in the Canberra Times just after they won. And, of course, they went on to win in 1989 and then um, again in, uh, they won in 1990. And, of course, uh, with, uh, with success, um, politicians start hanging out with you. So Ros Kelly... Uh, famous of the whiteboard, would regularly be seen in the dressing rooms, um, and Bob Hawke would often be in the Raiders' dressing rooms. And uh, Fred Daly, the uh, famous Newtown supporter, who um, also was a Raiders supporter, would also often uh, hang out with the Raiders. So um, I suppose the interesting thing about this is I see uh, this period as uh, a peak in uh, the success of rugby league. They'd successfully negotiated an expansion to a national game, Huge amount of money was pouring into the game from gambling and from television revenues, but all of this, of course, was just a precursor to the uh, to the to the battle for um, pay television content, which was about to occur. Occur. So the Super League war is coming, and but at this particular moment, the end of the eighties, rugby league is sort of on top of the world and thinks it's really pulled it off, and the administrators are slapping the, themselves on the back. So um, pulling it back to um, Canberra, I think. Um, this game, game 1989 grand final, provided a great focus for community pride in the much maligned Canberra capital. For many Canberrans, the outpouring of lime green pride, which both preceded and followed the game, forever disproved the idea that Canberra was a city without a soul. The victory of the Raiders was also an important milestone in the struggle between rugby league and Australian rules football. Um, I think if Australian rules had put a team into Canberra, that would have stopped the expansion of rugby league in that area, but they didn't. Rugby league got to have that very important area. Um, and I think this, this, it was a successful moment in the expansion of the game from that Sydney competition to a national competition and a really important uh, milestone in the history of, of, of what we think of as the National Rugby League today. And as I hope I've demonstrated, the game 
turns into a great story, which I think is why it endures as one of the great rugby league grand finals. Thank you. Okay, so that's it for today. So we'll be back tomorrow with the second part of the Tom Brock Conference. As always, love to hear your thoughts. Email us at therugbyleaguedigest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Give the Tom Brock Committee a follow as well. You can find them on Facebook and Twitter. And we will speak to you tomorrow. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.